This is the Rise City Church Sermon Podcast. We are a church in Gresham, Oregon, on a mission to rise up and saturate our city with the gospel. We would love for you to join us on Sundays. For more information, check out our website, rise.cc. Whether you already follow Jesus or are exploring Christianity, we hope that you experience the power of God through this message. We've been lied to. With the invention of the internet, the creation of the iPhone, we were promised to be more connected than ever before. But we're discovering there is a massive difference between deep connection and being socially networked. The results in the wake of this facade of closeness is that we are experiencing profound disconnection in an exceedingly lonely world. Yet from the opening pages of the Bible, We see that this aloneness is not good for our souls. It is not what you were created for. Only the gospel has the power to flip this experience upside down. You are created for connection. You are called to be a people. Through his church, Jesus is writing a new story, building an eternal family. So stop settling for the cultural experience of isolation and disconnection and find your people. Together, let's fight to build deep connection in a lonely world. How we doing this morning, Rise City Church? Oh, we rowdy. I like it. Let's go. Oh, man, I love it. Hey, I just want to say welcome, especially if you're new. My name is Jason. I'm the lead pastor here at Rise, and we love gathering together. And so we're entering into a series uh, where we're looking at how we are created for connection. What does it look like to find your people? How do we build deep connection in what our experience is a deeply lonely world? And honestly, I, I can't think of a more timely topic to, than to look at a biblical theology, the theme of community right now. What was Jesus building? What does it look like to be in connection? Because what we're experiencing, and I don't know if you've ever gone through a season of deep loneliness, but the truth is all of us, in different times, we experience, it's transitions. Maybe you move somewhere new for the first time and you just didn't know anybody, and you're just like, man, who are my people? What does this look like? Maybe that you went through a new season of work or family that had you more disconnected or isolated. Or maybe you went through a global pandemic for two and a half years and we're, you know, we're withdrawn. Like we've all experienced this in deep ways. For me, one of those seasons of just where I just was confronted with deep loneliness was I had moved up here. I moved up to the Portland area from the Bay Area, California to go to school. And I didn't have my people from home anymore. People who knew me, who knew my story, who, who I could call on, on a whim, who I, I, they knew what was in my fridge. You know what I'm talking about? Like those people. And, and so, and I remember a particular Friday night, I was sitting there and I was like, I feel deeply lonely. I have no plans tonight. And I don't even know who I would call to spend time with. And it just, it confronted me. And it builds on each other oftentimes, where we see these seasons where you're in a fight with a coworker, you feel this disconnection. Or now your family is actually, every time you get together, they're just fighting about politics. And so that, that connection that you used to have is not there. Or you're overwhelmed with work. And so your spouse is feeling frustrated. And so you're trying to, as you, it feels like this juggle where you can never get a hold of things. Uh, I recently read an article by Vox. 
and, and they, they entitled it this idea of, that we are in a friendship recession. And I thought, man, that is spot on. That is a title that, that definitely hits. And they started to point to a couple different, uh, a couple different things. So they, they looked at how they were focusing in on men and how in 1990, 50% of men said they had at least six close friends. And in 2021, only 25% would say that. So, so there's this digression and regression of where it's at. One in five single men say they have no close friends at all. And, and we've seen this observation and this increase in growing. Allison Abrams, she's a psychologist, she put it like this. Since the 1980s, the percentage of American adults who report being lonely has doubled. Self-reported feelings of loneliness and the objective state of being socially isolated. So both feeling loneliness and you're actually disconnected and you're isolated have negative effects on our health. There is compelling evidence that both are associated with poor physical, mental, and emotional well-being. Have we seen this over the last few years? Absolutely. So much so that the American Psychological Association is calling for social connection to be made a public health priority in the United States. Loneliness is as important a risk factor for premature death as obesity and smoking. This was written about five years ago. This is what we're experiencing. And so they, they make observations. They, they kind of ask, okay, why is that? So this is from a secular, non-theological explanation. Why are we seeing loneliness? Well, we're experiencing shifts in our world. You know, one of them is just, you know, over, even over the last couple hundred years, there's a shift from a, you used to have a village. You, you were raised in a village. You, you knew you were near your parents and grandparents. Like the person, like the the smith was the smith, right? You know, like, like all the different trades and, and you had this small village and you knew everybody. And so, and we're seeing this shift. One of the shifts that we're even seeing in the last couple of years is within, within um, housing as real estate has increased. No longer are people going out and getting married or going out and getting roommates. They're actually staying at home longer. 52% of adults, 18 to 29, still live with their parents. And, and so there's less of a social connection, so you're, you're seeing that. On work, people are working longer hours, and so there's less connection, but now that we have remote work, and that's increased in a significant way, now you have less connections socially with coworkers and what that looks like. And then there's social media. Okay, well, again, what was promised was that this was gonna, we were gonna be networked and connected in a deeper way. And what's happened is actually the opposite. Studies have shown that because it's this easy, shallow connection, um, we are way less, uh, way less likely to hang out and we are significantly more likely to feel jealousy and insecurity. And so we experience jealousy and insecurity. And so what do we do? We're now jealous of these friends or we're insecure around them, so we spend even less time with them and we turn to social media, which makes us feel more disconnected and isolated and insecure, and it becomes this downward spiral. Like, are you seeing this in our world? Does this, does this seem to ring true to what the experience is going on? And for many of us, this is our experience. We're, we're like, man, I feel lonely. I don't feel known. I don't know my people. I don't have my tribe. I feel disconnected. Let me just tell you, this is not how it was supposed to be. 
This is not what we are created for, and I'll prove it to you. Uh, Grab a Bible. Uh, Open to Genesis chapter one. We're gonna look at the garden. We're gonna look at the original creation story because, because this is the foundation of so many things. The start of our origin, it frames our identity, who we are, it frames our purpose, but it also gives us the setting and the plot to the story in which we find ourselves. So I'm gonna read a pretty significant chunk from Genesis 1 and 2, and then we're gonna kind of break it apart and look at it. Okay, what does this mean? What are the implications of this? So Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air, over the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, jump down to Genesis 2.15. It kind of zooms in on the human story a little bit. Genesis 1 is kind of this general creation story. Genesis 2 zooms in on humanity. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. All of this is yours, but... To the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. There's a boundary. And in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Jump to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is our origin story. And so, so what do we take from this? Well, a few things. First, we are created in God's relational image. This is foundational for us to understand because we are not created to be isolated, independent human beings. In verse 26, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, why is there plurality there? Now, why does it say singular God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Because God is Trinity. This this is a foundational theology to Christianity. And so I just wanna explain this briefly. The theology of the Trinity. What it means is Father, Son, and Holy Holy Spirit are a community of perfect love. Now, if you grew up in church, uh, you went to youth group, you had your youth pastor would get up and he would say this word Trinity. And then he would be like, okay, let me explain it to you. It's like an egg, right? And they would do these terrible analogies, right? And you know, it's like an egg. It's got three parts and it's the shell and then there's the, you know, the, the, the egg white and then the egg yolk and they're all one but they're separate. And then you drop the egg and it would be like, it just feel like heresy in the moment, right? Like what is happening, right? We worship egg, what's going on? Or, you know, they'd be like, oh, it's like water. You know, water can be, you know, liquid or it can be vapor, it can be gas or it can be solid. And that's kind of like, no, th- that is, all of those are terrible. 
any analogy that we try to use does not work, okay? It, it's gonna fall short, okay? And so if you're, if you're new to the faith, you're new to Christianity, you're like, this is really confusing that God is three in one. And if you've been following the faith for decades, this is really confusing, God is three in one, because he's beyond us. But here's, what, here's the foundational idea that I need you to understand. That, that God the Father is God, and God the Son is God. That's Jesus. And God the Holy Spirit is God. But God the Father is not God the Son. They're separate persons. So it's three in one. And the best way for us to think of it is a community of love. Okay, All are fully God. But there's this beautiful outpouring. And we see it all throughout the scriptures. When you start reading the Bible, you see it on page one, but Jesus shows up and you just constantly see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit interacting and working together. Just, I just wanna give you a few examples of, of the way this, perfect, this community of perfect love functions together. They, we see them enjoying each other. So that's Genesis one, right? They, it, it, creating, it says, this, God, oh, this is good. Isn't this wonderful what we've made? It's good. It's good. It's good. There's joy. There's rejoicing. There's beauty in what they are participating and doing. They have been in perfect loving community for all of eternity. And we see them encouraging one another. So at the baptism of Jesus, it says Jesus rises up out of the water after he's baptized and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And then the voice of the Father says, this is my son with him I am well pleased. We see words be put to the love and the grace. We see them supporting one another. In John 14, we see where the Holy Spirit is sent. So Jesus dies to build his church and then he sends the Holy Spirit to empower his church. So they're working in unison, supporting one another, loving one another. In Mark chapter nine, there's this beautiful moment where three of the disciples follow Jesus up on this mountain and it says Jesus is transfigured, right? He, he's, he becomes unbleachably, his unbleachably white, right? They, they don't even have words for it. You know, Peter's like, oh, he's like unbleachable, right? It was just so white, right? He's transfigured. He's like the first, he transforms. Like the first, he's like Messiatron, right? You know, in this moment, right? And so they're, they're just wide, like, what's happening? And Peter, you know, Peter's literally like, oh, he's like, it's good for us to be here. I'm gonna make three tents, one for you, one for Jesus, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because these are our heroes, and our life is built upon them. And God shows up, and he, and he makes Moses and Elijah disappear, and he's like, no, 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 no. No, it's Jesus that we build upon. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And so we see this constant pouring out and glorifying and honoring and loving. We see them deferring to one another, that Jesus, he, he, he is under the submission of his father. Oh, my father wills this, and so I walk in obedience. It, it's beautiful, this relationship. We see them glorifying one another. In John 17, Jesus is praying, and he's like, he's like, Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. It's this perfect, beautiful relationship for all of eternity. And this is what we're created to experience. We are created in the image of this God. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, the, the life of the Trinity is characterized by self, not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. Jesus isn't focused on himself. He's trying to bring glory and honor to the Father and to the Spirit. 
The Spirit isn't focused on himself. He's trying to give honor and love and glory to the Father and the Son. When we delight and we serve someone else, we enter into a dynamic orbit around him or her. We center on the interests and desires of the other. So it is, the Bible tells us, with the Godhead. Each voluntarily circles around the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. This is what the Trinity is. It's incredible. The love that the Father has for the Son. And the Son has for the Spirit, and the Spirit has for the Father. Tim Chester, in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, he says, each person of the Trinity shares the life of the other two. So in each person, the being of the one God is fully manifested. They're so deeply connected that when you honor Jesus, the Father is honored. When you speak highly of the Holy Spirit, the Son is glorified. That is how deeply connected they are. The eternal God in himself is a mutually indwelling, loving community. We were made in the image of God who is relationship. He, he is love himself. This means our longing for healthy, mutually submissive, supportive, interdependent relationships isn't simply us craving something good, like us wanting vegetables or vitamins, right? We are craving the fundamental reason we were created. We are longing to be whole. We weren't just built for community, we were built because of community. That, that the Trinity is outpouring, woven into the fibers of our souls as a pattern of experiencing intimate relationship with God and then expressing that love in our families and communities and churches. This is who we are. And this is why it is not good for us to be alone. It's interesting in this creation narrative. When you read through Genesis 1 over and over, you see this pattern. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. And we get to Genesis 2.18. And what does God say of Adam's aloneness? He says it is not good. Now, here's what's fascinating. The fall has not yet occurred. So Adam is in this state of, of union there's no sin, no disobedience, nothing to mar the relationship between God and man. And Adam is in this perfect state of intimacy with his creator. He's walking, they walk in the garden together. There's conversations that are filled with closeness and joy. He's known and he's loved at his core by love himself. Yet the word God uses to describe him is alone. Why is that? It's because God has created us out of his goodness to reflect him. And part of that reflecting him, imaging him, is our need to be connected to others. And so there's this kind of interesting moment. I skipped over it while I was reading it, but I want to explain it to you. Because you're reading, and you're, you're reading about the, the, the human creation account, and then all of a sudden there's this pause where um, Adam starts naming all the animals, right? 
And you're like, this feels weird. This feels like it doesn't. It is like, this is a funny scene to me, by the way, right? Just, I, I just like picture, you know, Adam's there and like God's there and is like, you know, lead administrative angel is like taking down notes, right? And he's like, hey, whatever you name him, right? So, and first Adam is so creative, isn't he, right? They come, he's like hippopotamus. They're like, how many peas? Yeah, whatever, that's fine, you know? It's Hebrew anyway, don't, you know, don't worry about it, right? You know, duck-billed platypus. Pterodactyl, like the P is silent though, you know, like all, all these creative things, right? And then you can tell Adam, he starts to wear, he wears down, he, his creativity starts to run out a little bit, all right? You know, dog, you know, right? They're like, okay, good. God's like, that's my name backwards, you know, right? And then next one, like cat, you know, and they're like writing it down, they're like, wait, I didn't make that, what, what, uh, you know, like, this is the scene, okay? This is that scene, and there's a point to it, and what's the point? God is wanting Adam to see among all creation, there is no equal partner. And so we can enjoy God's, we should enjoy God's creation. You can say, man, I, I, I love the mountains. I love the river. I love the sunshine. All these good things that God has created for us to enjoy, that he would be glorified in us enjoying his creation. But it still does not satisfy because God has made a human-shaped hole inside of our personhood that he himself has chosen not to fill. He's made us for community. And we know this by the creation account that before sin ever entered the world, aloneness is claimed to be not good in the eyes of our good creator. And so you were created to be deeply connected to the people of God. And it's a reflection and a revelation of the community that God has amongst the Trinity. And so you read through this account, and that's the first thing we have to take away. Right? Why do we know that we are relational beings? Because we're created in God's image. And he is, at his core, he is love himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But as we read this account, there's a few other things that we can take, a, take away from the garden narrative that sets the context for this connection we were created for. And, and in fact, I, I would look at five key elements of this story, of this framework of the garden, that I think actually sets a really good framework for human relationship and human, human flourishing that, that we all long for. And as we move through this series, we're gonna look at these five in a little bit more depth, but I just want you to see a foundational overview, okay? Here, here's the first one, is presence. That they enjoyed physical closeness to each other and to God. There's an actual proximity there. It says in, in chapter three, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They're all there together. There's connection. And so we need to understand that in God's framework for community, that, that closeness and proximity actually matters. That is deep and it's intentional. It's day in and day out connection. It, here, I would go so far to say this. Deep relationships are not digital. You hear me? No. Okay, I'm not trying to like bash hard on like the iPhone here. I have one. I like it. I'm good with it, right? I, I enjoy that I can talk to you. I enjoy that I can see pictures. I, can, I enjoy that I can have phone calls and text. I love that connection. But that is not where depth takes place. Depth takes place in proximity. 
people that you're actually around, people that can see you and know you, because it's easy to put off a facade in a digital world. And for some of us, we feel safer getting quote unquote close to people that live across the country, across the world, because they don't have to actually see us in day-to-day action. But that, that is not depth because we're not truly known. We are meant to see each other's faces and to cook meals together. We are meant to build sheds side by side and to catch up in the school pickup drop-off line, right? We are meant to cheer at basketball games, to laugh until our mascara streaks, to sit in boats. I, this never happened to me, but okay. But sit in boats, catching fish, to watch our kids play at the park, and to smoke cigars around a fire, walking away smelling of smoke and friendship. 9.30, amen did that, okay? You guys felt a little more uneasy, <laughs> a little more uneasy, okay? We got some, we got some closet sinners in here, okay? The, <laughs> Right? Too many Baptists. All right, this is good. (laughs) This is good, and it is from God, and it is foundational in the garden that we would be in proximity, that we would enjoy each other's presence. Second is vulnerability. It says the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You know what that means? They were two things. They were fully known and fully loved. It's hard to be vulnerable, isn't it? It's hard to be transparent because what if people really find out who I am and they reject me and they no longer actually love me? Keller puts it like this. He says, to be loved but not known, it's comforting, but it's just superficial. But to be known and not loved, that's our greatest fear. Yet to be fully known and truly loved, well, That's a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Man, there is this deep, beautiful vulnerability in the garden that we are created for, that we could be fully known and fully loved. Third um, is what I would call accountability. And I struggle with this word. And the reason I struggle with this word is because I grew up in youth group in the 90s. And everybody had, a, everybody had an accountability. Who's your accountability partner? And th- what that meant was, who do you sit with on a weekly basis and share all the ways you are failing as a human being and coming up short, right? And then you sing like a Michael W. Smith song and you go on your way, right? Okay. But accountability is a beautiful thing. And what I mean by this is even in the garden, even before the fall, there's boundaries in relationships, isn't there? God lays out, hey, this is what, there's boundaries in life. And and part of these boundaries are because I love you and I want what's good for you. And, and, And they're called to take responsibility. Adam's given a responsibility as a protector of his family. And he has to give an account for how he lives. And, and so part of the failure of the fall is Adam does not adequately protect his wife from the lies of the serpent. But you know what else? Eve, she fails as well because she was to give an account. She was there because Adam needed a helper. He needed a partner, somebody by his side. And she failed in that. And so accountability taking responsibility in our relationships is actually a really good thing. 
And so we should be people that know each other. We should be people that is knowing what's going on in each other and saying, who has God called you to be? Hey, how can I help you live up to that? Not about shame or condemnation or guilt, but about conviction and a call to something higher. We see that in the beginning. It's foundational. Fourth, they have a mission, or you could phrase it, they have a purpose. They were given a clear calling to, to care for creation, and they're called to do it together. Verse 20, Genesis 1, 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and to multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. They had a mission, and we need this in relationships. Relationships aren't an, aren't a, um, an end in of themselves. They're a means to something bigger that we, we bond around these things. Now, I know this is true of, of, of everybody, both men and women, but I would argue this is particularly true of men. Like, you want your, ladies, you want your husbands to have like deep relationships where they're known. And so what do we suggest? Oh, just go get a cup of coffee and spill your soul and talk about your feelings over a cup, you know, over a caramel latte with another dude. The dude's like, I'm good, man. Like, I'm, I, like I, just give me my cave and my shed and I'm, I'm all right. But here's the thing. Men bond deeply when they sweat together. They bond deeply when they have a project to work on. This is why those of you who have served in the military, you know the bonds you have with those brothers because, because you had a mission. You went, through, you went through, some of you went through hell together and it bonds you together. We need this friendships. They need a purpose. We should be moving a mission forward, calling each other to more, raising one another up. And they have that in the garden and we have that in the kingdom. And then fifth, one, an observation, something they had is they had time. And what I mean by that, they had consistency. They were there. This was supposed to be the beginning of all eternity. There wasn't meant to be an end. They couldn't just quit and be like, oh, like, hey, like I'm moving to, you know, a, a, a more politically aligned garden. Sorry, bye, you know, right? <laughs> they're there, that one hit, okay. So they're there. <laughs> <laughs> We're not experiencing that at all right now in our lives. But there, there, there was supposed to be they're enjoying each other and enjoying good food, good creation, living with purpose and mission. And so we see these five marks. And I would argue that this framework is true of any deep relationship you've gotten a taste of in your life. But, but we can't miss at the very center of all this is the Trinity holding it all together. It's the Trinity that gives us time and connection. It's the Trinity that allows accountability and boundaries and proximity and to be known and vulnerable and to have a mission. And God is at the center of all of this. And maybe you've experienced this. Maybe there was a time in your life where you're like, man, I, I, I felt like I, I had this connection. It was a childhood friend. Maybe it was a season in your marriage. Maybe it's a sibling that you just, man, we just, we just connect on this way. And, and I would argue that that taste is a taste of the kingdom. It's a taste of the garden, but it's a taste of the kingdom. It's what we are created for, that we would experience this, okay? So if all this is what's created, if this is all the design, how did we get to where we're at today? How, 
How did all of it fall apart? Well, this is where we need to turn the page. And we need to read Genesis 3. And we need to see how the fall ruined everything. See, in Genesis chapter 3, we get a piece of the puzzle that helps us make sense of all the pain, all the disconnection, all the separation and suffering here on this earth. And in, in any worldview, any way that you interpret and understand the world, it needs to answer these deep questions. And this is, again, why I think Christianity is so holistic and solid. It gives a lens to understand the pain and brokenness in which we are all experiencing. And this is what theologians call the fall. And it's this moment in time where Eve and Adam, they chose to turn inward and break the loving trust relationship that they had with God. And the effect of it, it was cosmic. It was holistic over the whole world. We're experiencing the curse of that. See, instead of being a part of this perfectly loving family of the Trinity, which they were created to be welcomed and to be under the umbrella of, we actually rejected love and trust. And we chose sin instead. And therefore, we brought about separation and death. We chose to believe the Satan, the devil, that God was holding out on us, that we, we couldn't be a part, we couldn't trust him fully. And we chose ourselves. And this was, this was the beginning of the curse that we've been experiencing ever since. Gary Brashear, he explains it like this, the, the result of the fall and, and how everything changed. He says, as a result of the fall, the descent into sin has continued unabated ever since. Respect for God was replaced with, by rebellion. Blessing was replaced by physical, spiritual, and eternal punishment. Viewing God as a friend to walk with was replaced by viewing him as an enemy to hide from. Trust was replaced by fear. Intimacy with God was replaced by separation from God. Freedom to obey God was replaced by enslavement to sin. Honesty was replaced by lying and deceit. Self-sacrifice was replaced by self-centeredness. Responsibility was replaced by blaming. Authenticity was replaced by hiding. And so we look at these five characteristics of the garden, presence and vulnerability and accountability and mission and time. And, and what we see is that, that we no longer are experiencing this full presence and proximity, that there's actually a separation that takes place. That there, there's a fall that takes place. It tells us in the New Testament that sin separates. And so they experience separation from God. They experience separation from, their, from, from the created world, from the garden, but they also experience separation relationally. There's not the same level of trust and intimacy that there once was before. Where they were, where they were vulnerable, and fully known and fully loved, uh, they now is replaced with shame. They run and hide. And so this is why we feel shame today. Anytime, even at the thought of exposing anything about our lives, even good things, we start to cover up and we hide. And accountability is replaced with blame. Rather than Adam taking ownership of his responsibility or Eve taking ownership of her responsibility. Adam says, it's the woman you put here with me. Things were great until you brought her along, right? And, Adam, and Eve, she, what does she do? She doesn't take accountability. She blames it was a serpent. Rather than accountability and responsibility, it's blame. And the mission, the purpose they have, it's now cursed. At birth, there's now labor pains. Working and toiling the ground, there's, there, there's now thorns and thistles. 
And instead of unlimited time, they're faced with death and separation. See, we've been building walls and sowing fig leaves since the Garden of Eden. We have to understand, we have to have a theology of sin. And we have to understand the fall because the fall is why people let us down. The fall is why we hurt and we get hurt in relationships. The fall is why your dear friend gossiped behind your back. The fall is why your spouse broke your trust. The fall is why your father isn't the grandfather to your kids you always thought he would be. We're, we're experiencing this in our everyday lives and we still are. It's the moment the human heart it turned, turned inward trusting in itself rather than God. And ever since, we've been fighting the fallout of that sin that turns us into selfish, domineering, and hurtful creatures. And we've devolved into something less than what we were made to be. We are not reflecting and imaging that beautiful, loving relationship of God and the sacrificial love that we were designed to. So so what do we do? Like, okay, so we're gonna do this series on community. This is kind of a depressing beginning to it. <laughs> if it's all broken, how am I supposed to find my people? If relationships are terrible, how am I supposed to connect and have deep relationship? What, what do we need? What does it look like? When, when I was about seven years old, we, I had an older brother and a younger sister, and we had this babysitter down the street. Her name was Ashley. And anytime my parents would go anywhere or they needed a baby, she's the one who, she'd always come up. And she'd bring the same movie every time. Because we asked her to. We're like, we, please bring that movie, right? So she'd pull it out. She'd pull it out, get her VHS out, you know, pull it out of its, you know, cardboard sleeve, put it in, pull it out, put it in the rewind machine, rewind it, right? Put it in the VHS, and then all of a sudden the Princess Bride would be playing. Uh. We always get Pentecostal with these good moments, right? <laughs> I love it. I feel it. And it, it's, it's, the, it's just, I'm sorry, like, it's the greatest movie ever made. It's just incredible. It's just amazing. It just taps into something deep in our soul. It's the story of a grand, and if you're like, no spoilers, 1987, okay? I've given you enough time, right? Okay. <laughs> I've given you, 35 years is plenty, okay? It's the story of a grandfather whose son is sick and he comes and, he, and, he, and he's gonna read him a story. And he's like, oh, is it a love story? Oh, I don't want that. Okay, I can stop reading. Oh, no, okay, read on. And, it, and it's the story of Princess Buttercup and her true love, Wesley. And Princess Buttercup, she gets kidnapped and it feels hopeless, but, but Wesley, he is willing to face anything, willing to sacrifice everything to face all kinds of evil to rescue her. Am I right? Face poison or quicksand, which I always thought quicksand would be a bigger, you know, concern in everyday natural life, probably because of this movie. He's faced poison and quicksand. He battles fire swamps and rodents of unusual sizes, R-O-U-S's, am I right? Right? He, He climbs cliffs and fights giants. And to which he says, you mean you put down your rock and I put down my sword and we try to kill each other like civilized people, right? <laughs> and yes, he even is willing to face Inigo Montoya, <laughs> whose father was killed and he had to prepare to die, right? <laughs> and you know why seven-year-old mullet-haired Jason loved this movie? Because it tapped into something deep in my soul that I longed for. And you know what that is? That when things feel hopeless, 
We are created to long for and desire a, a rescuer who is willing to face death to sacrifice his life to bring us about. This is why the Princess Bride taps into us even 35 years later is because it points us to the gospel, that we are hopeless and we, we I'm sorry, you're Princess Buttercup, right? <laughs> and you need rescue. This is who Jesus is. This is what Ephesians says. It says, but God, when we were hopeless, when things were broken, when all was lost, when we were trapped in our sin, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Not because we rescued ourselves, not because we did good, no, because of his love. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. See, what do we do when the fall feels like the everyday experience, when it feels like all is hopeless and broken and we're lonely and things will never change, we remind ourselves that Jesus came to restore all that was broken, that Jesus is our only hope. He came to lift the curse. This is the whole point of the gospel. This is why it's called good news because it's good news for every part of your life. It's good news for your marriage. It's good news for your addiction. It's good news for your friendships. It's good news for your family. It brings holistic healing. It is our only hope. He is making a new people. This is what Jesus came to do. This is, see, the gospel is the story of God restoring all things through Jesus. This is how Paul puts it later in Colossians. He says, for in him, speaking of Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to what? Reconcile to himself some things, a few things. No, no, no. To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is the story that Jesus brought, is he is our redeemer. He is our healer. He is our hope. What, what, what do our relationships need? What does our loneliness need? It needs Jesus. It needs his redemption. It needs his reconciliation. And he came down. Here's what's incredible. The God of the universe, the one who made everything we see and know, he took on human flesh and he dwelt among us. He became a baby so that he could grow, live a perfect, sinless life on our behalf, die on our behalf, and raise again, conquering over death on our behalf so that he can build an eternal family. This is what Jesus is doing. Everything that we've experienced, he's experienced. He's walked through and he found his people. He spent the last three and a half years of his life calling disciples. He said, come follow me and I'm gonna make you into fishers of men. You're gonna join me on this mission. And, and these people, they were, unex- they were found in all unexpected places. We would say they were the wrong people. They were uneducated fishermen that people laughed at. They were hated tax collectors that people didn't want to be around. They were prostitutes that nobody wanted anything to do with. They were children that people looked down upon. They were mother-in-laws of all people, right? These are his disciples. And as people looked on, people would say, man, they were the wrong age, the wrong ethnicity, the wrong gender, the wrong status, the wrong personality type, the wrong people, yet they were all, they had one thing in common, they were willing. They were willing to follow Jesus. And he said, I'm gonna make you into something incredible. And this small group, 
of 120, 72, 12, these different circles, these disciples, they flipped the world upside down as we know it. And he sent them with a mission. And he said, go and make disciples. He said, I'm gonna build my church. That's what he promised. And he says, as you were going and making disciples, here's what I want you to do. I want you to baptize them. That means welcome them into the church family. It's a sacrament where somebody publicly declares, I am dead to my old life and I'm being raised with Christ. This is why at the end of the series, the following week, you know what we're gonna do as a church? We're gonna, do, we're gonna have a baptism celebration. Man, I just had a guy in the last service come up to me. He's like, you won't believe the story of God, that God has been doing in my life the last two weeks. And as soon as you said baptism, I'm all in because God has changed my heart and I wanna follow Jesus with my life. Guess what? He's a part of our family. And baptism is how you welcome people in to this eternal family that God is building. He says, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I commanded you, to, to, to walk in submission, to reject sin, to walk in righteousness. But you know what else? One of the primary things we read in the New Testament is how we love one another. How do we reflect the Trinity's perfect love? How do we try to replicate that? That is what, that's the end game of community as a church that looks so different from the world around us, where everybody is isolated, disconnected, ripping each other apart and alone, we can say, man, would you come with me? And would you experience something that is not being built by human hands or human minds? Something that is being built by the work of Jesus amongst us. See that Friday night when I sat there, incredibly alone, having no idea who to turn to. I had a friend reach out to me that weekend. And they said, hey, on Sunday, I'm going to church. You want to come with me? And every part of me just wanted to just like wallow in my loneliness. And I said, sure, I will. And I walked in and, and like I understand how hard it is to walk into a, a church community for the first time. You think everybody knows each other and you're like sticking out like a sore thumb. I, I, know, I know how to feel. I remember walking in and I had this buddy a guy I knew from college, he, came, he walked up to me. He was like, dude, I'm so glad you're here. He's like, hey, can I invite you on Thursday, my small group, it meets in an apartment, and, and why don't you come and join us? And so I, I didn't have a car, and so I, I just, that Thursday, I hopped on the Max, and, and I went, you know, I went from Portland out to this small city called Gresham, and it was an apartment complex right here in downtown Gresham. And I walked in, and the guy leading that small group was a guy named Jay Benson. And he just welcomed me in. Hey man, I'm glad you're a part of this. And I started meeting week after week. And, I, and, and Jay, he started giving, he picked me up after work and he would give me a ride to our small group and just get to know me and, and, and know my story and know about me. And he welcomed me into his family. About two years later, he introduced me to his sister and I married her. <laughs> Literally welcomed me into his family. A couple years, a year or so after that, we had our first kid. And it was this like brutal, uh, traumatic birth. Daxi got stuck. We had to have this emergency C-section. But this, the nurse that day, um, she was a gal from our small group. She, she was off work. She saw that we were going to the hospital. She called, she says, hey, I'll pick up a shift. And she came and she held our hand and she walked with us. I had no idea that that simple invite and that simple choice to say, yeah, I'll come to church. Yeah, y'all join that group. That was the beginning of me finding my people. My life was transformed. And this is what we're inviting you into.
would you be a part of what God is building here? Like, would you be welcome here? Would you come and get, maybe you're brand new. Man, join us for the next five weeks as we work our way through this series. Like, don't let the world tell you what Christians believe about community or let the world tell you what, what a church is. Let Jesus tell you what a church is supposed to be. And let's submit to him and his guiding and his leading and his teaching. Next week, we're gonna launch small groups. And, and I want you to welcome in, be welcomed into that and start to find your people. I want you to serve. I want you to, to, to live your calling and find your tribe. But listen, we've tried loneliness and being alone and I'm tired of it and it's miserable. And I believe that Jesus has offered a better way. And that way is his church. Lord, we are so grateful for what you're building. I'm so, I love this church. I love the people of this church. I love how they are shaped and molded by your Holy Spirit. I love the fruit that I see in their lives. I love the way they forgive and they walk. Lord, would we be a church that submits to your word, that is a community of grace, that spends time together, that, that celebrates together, that grieves together, that we would live out a reflection of this image that you put in us to be garden people moving towards an eternal kingdom. Lord, would you protect our church as we move forward? Would you give us the unity that you bought by your blood and that you specifically prayed for while you were here on earth? Would we be humble and would we be built by you in your name?